Welcome to The Pursuit, a podcast produced by the Junior Board of the Chicago Midwest Chapter of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, otherwise known as NATIS. We are a group of emerging media professionals seeking insight from the leaders in our fields. I'm Nahar Gigneja, a sound designer and recent graduate of Northwestern University, and your host for this episode. Today, we'll get to hear from Stefan Moore, a Chicago-based sound artist and composer and professor at Northwestern University. His work with sound art installations has been exhibited worldwide, and he has worked with distinguished artists, including Laurie Anderson. He is also the president of Isabel Audio, a company that produces hemispherical loudspeakers. I can't wait to learn from his experience, so let's jump right in. Yeah, so thanks so much for doing this. Well, thanks for asking me to do this. The first question we always ask is, what was the moment you knew that you wanted to be a sound artist and a composer? Yeah, so um, I, I thought about this question a little bit. When I was in elementary school, we're talking now in the in like the late 70s, early 1980s, my elementary school got a hold of a uh, bunch of like, Atari 400 and 800 computers. That was like the technology in the classroom at that time. And I started learning to program a lot. And then at home, I had a, a little kind of like dictaphone type cassette recorder uh, that I could, I found out how to like mess with it. I could like do things where I sort of half held down the play button or tap the pause button while recording. And I could get all these weird effects uh, sort of like direct to tape as I was recording. So I think I've been messing with sound um, in code and sound on, on magnetic tape since before uh, I was, you know, double digits in age, which is, which is kind of funny. Nobody in my family was musical. Nobody had any inclination towards sound design. I was in church choir, and then I was in school choir. And I think in fifth grade, I was the lead in the school musical. I mean, just like all this kind of stuff. So I, I, I associated music with singing and with being on stage and performing. And then I had all these other interests in sort of messing around with sound. But to me, this was just like fun. It was goofy stuff. Um, I didn't know any composers. I didn't think composers were like people that still were alive. I thought they all, they were like an ancient, uh, very, very white, very old tribe of people who had existed once and left us with a bunch of music that we now continue to perform. And I didn't connect the fact that there was like music on the radio and popular musicians who are living today with composing it just to me the whole thing of like what was considered the music I was going to perform or do in a classical context to be completely different from like music as a vernacular thing that folks were just doing. So it, in a way, I, I felt like I didn't feel any burden of, of history because there was no possible way any of this was ever going to be serious. And I think I weirdly even though I began to be more worldly and understand things better, I didn't really seriously think about that as a thing that could be like an occupation until I, I went to college. I fell into it in this very strange way. I, I originally was in undergraduate school. Um, I went to Western Michigan University over in Kalamazoo, grew up in kind of a small town in far upper Michigan. Uh, and so when I, when I got to college, I was there to be a choir director because that's what I knew about music. And that's why I knew I wanted to somehow be involved in the creation of music. So my choral conductors growing up um, had always been people I looked up to, and that seemed like a, a natural step for me. And I took my first conducting course as a freshman, and um, I sucked 
at it. I've, I've always been a terrible piano player. I have very little piano skills. I can find my way around, but I, I don't, I can't like play with both hands really well. The hands kind of want to keep doing the same thing. And the same was true with conducting. The idea of kind of waving my hand in the air and using that to coax things out of people was just a lot more conceptually abstract and physically difficult for me. And I sort of became really disillusioned very fast in this class. I was like, wow, I, my colleagues are picking this up. So, so one day I was walking down the hall and I, I peeked into this room and there was a there was a computer music lab there uh, run by an amazing composer named Ramon Zepko. He had built this lab full of what was at that time like coolest electronic music gear. There was a synclavier, which was the synthesizer used on uh, Michael Jackson's uh, Thriller album. Uh, there was a rack of sampling keyboards. There was even uh, a computer that could run a program called Performer and later Digital Performer, which was my first encounter ever with digital editing software. Oh, like, like Motu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was a, it was yeah, a Motu yeah. piece of software, and it was the first time I ever saw like a waveform on a screen, but this was, yeah. I think that the version I was using was super primitive and this would have been, I, I didn't even get the chance to really look at that until like 1995 or so. But what I saw in the back of that room, when I just, just peeked through the door, I, I like two people were having a conversation. The door was ajar and I look, looked in and I saw the Moog modular synthesizer and I was like, what's that? <laughs> and, and, and what do I have to do? What loyalty do I have to claim? to uh, to sneak my way into this room and get my hands on that because I don't know what that is, but I wanna know everything about that. I think the only time I'd ever really seen a synthesizer demonstrated was there was this amazing segment on Sesame Street with Stevie Wonder when I was a kid. And I just remember like being completely floored. He was demoing, like doing things to sound with the synth. And I was just like, what? What's going on? So I was like, oh, that's a synthesizer. I can recognize it. I want to go and, and learn that. So I, I learned that the only way you could get into the class that was in there was to be, declare a composition major. I had not been composing or thinking of myself as a composer, and I still didn't. But I was like, I, I don't want to be a conductor. I'm pretty much discovering that. So um, I don't know what I want to be. I don't really want to be a singer as a career. That doesn't seem like a viable way through life for me. I don't know what the hell I want to do. I'm a little bit in despair, but I got some time to figure it out. And there's this cool machine I want to learn. So so I just started, uh, and I, I had a situation where I had received a scholarship to go to school that took a little bit of financial pressure off some of the decisions I was making. So I was like, I'll just give this a whirl. So I started taking composition classes and discovered I had some aptitude for it, although I was in a really different space than a lot of the other students starting out in that who had really good piano skills. And I was always just kind of felt like I was a fumbling fool. Um, but I eventually got to the class where I learned how to use the synthesizer. And it started to dawn on me, uh, not even that there would be a career. I didn't even have a sense of the future <laughs> or jobs or the world or making money. I was, I was still very young and naive, um, but I got a sense of feeling a real fascination and almost a continuation of some of the, the play I'd been doing. And so I'd say that's probably the moment somewhere, probably halfway through my sophomore year uh, at Western, I was just like, it, this, this, uh, I'm, I'm going to hang out here and see if I can fool them into thinking I'm a composer for as long as I can to continue to have access to this. And then I started taking uh, audio engineering classes. And um, I also started taking classes in computer science. 
And I wasn't really connecting how that would eventually play into the sound thing, but these were all just things I kind of separately enjoyed. Uh, slowly but surely, without even realizing I was doing it, I was kind of piecing together a skill set that was gonna lead me in the direction that I'm, I guess I'm still on. <laughs> yeah. All, all these years later. And what did the like, computer science classes kind of look like? Mm. Uh, uh, so CS classes at Western at the time, uh, when I first got there, everything was taught in Pascal. Half way through when I had finished like the 101, 102 classes in CS, they moved everything from Pascal to C. And I took a Fortran class, took an assembly language class on SunSpark machines. And I took an artificial intelligence class where they were teaching a language called Prologue that was really weird. I had, when I was, I think in seventh grade, <laughs> this, is, this is such a, such a, a period sounding story. There was a guy, like the kind of the the weird guy who sat in the back of the video arcade at the mall, uh, who I be I befriended because I was always hanging. My family would go to the mall. And I just wanted to hang out in the arcade and play video games. So um, I, I befriended this guy. His name was Mike Gatch. And uh, he uh, showed me this program where he was doing this weird, like, graphical realization of four-dimensional objects on a screen and the math around it. And I was just like, tell me everything you know. Like, what is, because I'd learned basic, I'd learned logo, I'd learned some very simple programming languages. And fourth was the first grown-up language. And so he taught me coding. I actually eventually ended up going over as this little kid, like going over to his place and like, just like hanging out with him while he like coded in fourth and narrated to me what he was doing. So weirdly, when I got to, to CS classes, I already had some background that I think some of the other students didn't have because that's a pretty weird thing to be doing as a, as a middle schooler. So that, that helped, I think, boost my confidence in that area. But it wasn't until I graduated from undergrad and got a job because uh, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And nobody had told me that computer music as a field existed at, in my undergraduate school. Even though they had this cool lab, nobody had ever taken me aside and said, music technology as a field exists. I remember I was working, um, I took a year off after undergrad and lived with my folks and worked at a startup internet company. And I discovered that I was the only person on the tech support team who could support both Mac and PC. So I became kind of valuable to those folks. But all of a sudden there was the internet and there were web pages and you could surf. I mean, so all of this happened after my undergrad, but right afterwards I started looking around online. So after I sort of like had a GeoCities page and then I was playing like Quake on the local network with my colleagues at work while we were taking calls, we were blowing each other up. Uh, I also started to look online just about, you know, naturally looking at music and technology things and discovered there were academic programs at universities in this field. So I discovered it totally just by surfing. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get a master's degree, which as far as I know, in my very naive concept of things is the next step of what you do. Uh, and I started putting out applications and actually going physically. I took a road trip and went and visited some schools on the East Coast, eventually went and applied to and got accepted to a Peabody Conservatory, went there for a year. And that's where I learned. It was 1997. It was perfect. Max had just shifted to Max MSP. There was just for the first time real-time audio. And I had a really great professor by the name of Ichiro Fujinaga, who uh, kind of took me under his wing uh, and 
you know, talk to me about synthesis algorithms and talk to me about here's what additive synthesis is, here's what FM synthesis is, and a lot of things I hadn't really learned fully up until that point. And so that was all of a sudden, you know, he was connected to a world where people were doing dissertations in these topics and where there was composing and academic research being done in all this. I only stayed at Peabody a year. I, I, I kind of hated the conservatory environment and I dropped out and eventually found my way to art school. As in like visual art? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so uh, while I was at Peabody, uh, this composer named Curtis Bond uh, who had uh, got his PhD at Princeton in composition and was an electronic musician and a bassist. Before Max became a thing, he was doing all of it in a programming language called Lingo that was part of Adobe Director. And he came and gave a talk. And there was a dinner afterwards that I went to and I sat next to him. And I, I just kept on turning to him and asking questions. And he gave me the most mind-blowing answers to everything. And I was like, where, where are you? So... It turns out he is teaching in a program at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York, which was a, basically, they called it Integrated Electronic Arts. It was an art program. It was an MFA in fine art, but it was um, people making documentary film, people making installation, okay. people people making sound. And he, he was there as a composer in this like composition sound art track they had. After I dropped out of Peabody, I stayed in Baltimore for a year or two years. I worked for a while for uh, a show that was syndicated on NPR and became the, the audio, the, the chief audio engineer for the show. So I learned a lot about audio editing for radio just by picking it up through this job. At that point, we're putting shows up on the satellite. And then while I was doing that, I made some friends at the art school at MICA in Baltimore, and they kind of sucked me into the video department uh, and the video department needed a sound room because uh, they didn't have a sound booth at the time. And I got tapped to come in and help them design it. And then after I helped them build it, they were like, well, none of us know how to use this. And so then I got recruited. I only had a bachelor's degree, but I got recruited to teach uh, classes. And so I learned, A, I love teaching. And B, I learned that art school students um, were way more fun for me than uh, conservatory and music school students. And it contributed. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, and, and I don't want to slag on, I think for a while I, I, I was pretty bitter about my music school experience, but I, I just realized that so much of what is required to be a musician is being in a practice room, trying to get an orchestral job. And especially at Peabody, folks are very focused on this sort of career track if I encountered some really cool idea, I would stay up all night the next three nights just playing with it and messing with it. And I couldn't sleep because I, my brain was on fire. But I would show this to my conservatory friends and they'd be like, oh, that's cool. All right, I got to go practice. Whereas I learned that art school students were the kinds of people who you show them a cool idea and their brain's on fire with you. And then you all stay up all night, every night working on this stuff that you find fascinating until you exhaust yourself. And so having those folks as my students, I was like, oh, art school people, these are my people. Like I yeah. finally, I finally found the, the spirit, I think that I was, I was working in. And so I was on the lookout for how can I go to art school and study sound and music? Um, and I, you know, I didn't know if that existed, but when I met Curtis, then it was like, it all clicked. I was like, okay, yeah, this does exist as a thing. And I actually ended up 
for the first time in my life, and here I am at that point, like 27 years old, but I, for the first time, everything started to make sense. Up until then, nothing really yeah. had ever like, like stitched together for me. And so that's, that's, that's anyway, that's, that's how that all happened. <laughs> I also spent a weird year in Baltimore, kind of between the radio gig and going back to school as a, uh, what we knew, what we called at the time, a webmaster uh being okay uh, yeah yeah i was hired at a company called polk audio which was a speaker manufacturer to sort of be the first in-house web person so i joined a marketing team and worked at a desk in an office for a year as a as a webmaster uh, it was fun to sort of jump back into the internet world for a minute and then when i went to 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 rensselaer i decided i was becoming an artist and i really focused all of my energy on creative coding, audio production, and I started to, to build the skill set that I thought I wanted to have to be able to realize the kinds of ideas that I, I was, I was going to want to work on. And I started picking up a lot of gigs as kind of this young Turk programmer where I could help out folks who had been, you know, artists for a long time and wanted to do interactive sound installation kind of work but didn't have any knowledge of those tools yeah that's really cool i mean so that makes a lot of sense also in terms of just like because one of my questions for you is just like how you keep track of all of these skill sets you have to have because there's like there's like <laughs> there's like the music part of it but then there's like the computer programming and then if you're like building robots you i'm sure you're like soldering wires or whatever and like well i mean i, I felt like i just was I, I jumped in the river and let the current take me yeah um how to how to i mean I'm going to quote a, a good friend of mine, an artist I work with a bunch, a guy named Samson Young, who's a, a sound artist and composer who's based in Hong Kong. Samson has a really beautiful way of answering exactly that question you're saying. I think I, I really agree with him. He said this once to a class of mine a few years ago when he came to campus and it really stuck with me. He said that he thinks of it as like he has a new member in his band. And so you have this band that you're like writing music for that is performing your music. And that's whatever your artwork is. Um, you know, when he learned 3D modeling and 3D printing uh, to be able to create objects, like all of a sudden there were all these cultural objects in his work. And he just says it's a very natural, organic thing where you learn to do something new and then you can take that new skill and it becomes a part. And he, he makes these huge works that are films and installations and whole gallery exhibitions they're very um wide ranging uh and it really has to do with it almost it one could look at his body of work as a documentation of when he learned what skill and how it became a part of his practice uh to to realize some of the amazing ideas that he's trying to express um for me, it was it was a little different than that, uh, but I think very much the same. The, the difference was that I was always hustling to um, to make ends meet, and until I eventually got my first real stable gig, um, which was as a touring sound engineer doing live sound, I I was basically teaching classes. Uh, at uh, adjunct at a few different schools. I taught at MassArt in Boston. I taught at Simons Rock College in Western Massachusetts. And I taught at RPI uh, before and after graduating there. And I was doing all this freelance work where one person wants you to do a multi-channel spatialization of sound. One person wants you to build an instrument that they can perform with. One person wants you to do an interactive thing where they can just hit space bar and have the effects change on a string quartet. So I was learning these skills partly for my own artwork, but 
often I was learning them for clients. Uh, and, okay. and to be able to, you know, they would say, do you know how to do this? And I'd be like, not today, but <laughs> yeah. you know, in, in a week, I'll have it figured out. Um, if you, if you give me a minute, uh, and then, and then we'll do it together. And I, I, I was always able to just have a sense of from where I was standing at that moment, where was the horizon of my skills? And like, how do I sort of paddle my little boat out in that direction to get to that new territory? Nothing that I know in technology have I just learned for the academic pleasure of, of, of learning a, a field like, oh, today I would like to learn how to do this because this feels like, you know, I, uh, uh, the next uh, piece of my knowledge I want to fill in. It's always like a uh, client needs to know how to do this. And I know how to do these four parts of it, but these three parts I'm really fuzzy on, but I know where on the web I can surf to get information. And I have a friend I can talk to who has done stuff like this before, who can give me a leg up. And, um, uh, uh, and sometimes it's like, I know that if I buy this object and mess around with it, it will eventually behave. Uh, and having a bit of confidence in my uh, ability to make things work, you know, uh, very gradually. I always, I always say, uh, from dumb comes smart. That's like my motto. It's like, I just, I go from being completely a beginner and, and not having uh, uh, any knowledge about something to, to eventually becoming pretty good at it just by you know, engaging with it and fighting with it. Uh, I still don't really understand what I, I don't know how to characterize what I do or who I am. Um, uh, and I'm almost 50. So <laughs> I, I kind of, you know, I've, I've had declining confidence that I'll ever reach that point, but it's not really a, it's not really a goal. You're listening to The Pursuit, the weekly podcast produced by the Junior Board of the National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences, Chicago Midwest Chapter. I'm John Owens, the Nata Chicago Midwest Chapter President. And this is a busy spring for our chapter. Our board will be holding a series of real reviews where board members will be providing virtual advice and critiques for broadcasters with resume tapes. We'll offer real reviews on Saturdays throughout the month of April. And on May 13th, we're back with our first live event, the 2022 Chicago Silver Circle Awards, where we'll induct eight Chicago broadcasting legends, Derek Blakely, Mary Margaret Bartley, Phil Ponce, Martha Teichner, Roz Varon, Don Cornelius, Dick Johnson, and Morris Jones. Go to our website at chicagoemmyonline.org for more information about the upcoming events. And now, back to the pursuit. You've, you've struck a very like rare, interesting balance to me. It's kind of like you have the academia side of your work that lets you make the art you want to make and also teach and enjoy teaching. But then you also have a very strong entrepreneurial, like commercial side of your work. I was also just curious about your like experience getting clients because some of your work's pretty niche in terms of like, um, I guess like installation <laughs> art compared to like... Yeah. compared to like dialogue editing or whatever I do you know like like I can find I can find some bad audio to fix or something but like I think installation arts like or um like furniture just like like yeah that kind of those kind of clients are more um like niche and I'm just curious like how you find them or how you found them and yeah what that approach was so um I have uh, uh so many jobs where uh well I think early on in my freelancing work I would work with someone who I had met uh, and we have a great experience together and they'd be very happy with the thing that I, I made for them. And then I would be sure to say to them, I, I don't, I don't want to, I want to be too, 
too simplistic about it, but like these are the things that actually make a big difference or made a big difference for me uh, that, that I always feel like sometimes people's careers are slower to launch because they don't have these ideas on their head. And, and one of them was that whenever, whenever I reached that point with a client and we were done and we're having that sort of last wrap up conversation, I would say to them, and I'm, you know, I had a great experience working for you. I hope that if other projects come up that we can work together again. And if you know anyone who uh, it seems could make use of my skill set. Uh, please let them know that I'm looking for more work, and uh, I, uh, you know, feel please feel free to recommend me, and just place that that seed in people's minds. And then, you know, a week later, they're having lunch with a friend who's doing some interesting art piece, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm trying to figure this part of it out. And I don't know how it works." It'll be in their mind to say, "Well, I just worked with this guy, and he uh, he seems to to." To know what he's doing i had a good experience you want me to introduce you and he'd they'd be like sure and then i you know that's the next conversation and sometimes i would have too many projects going sometimes i'd be a little overcommitted, um and you'd, you'd have to sort of pull an all-nighter here and there to make everything come together but um well yeah and also like i've had that experience yeah. too where it's just like one week you don't work or whatever so then the, right. so when you when you are overbooked you just kind of got a deal <laughs> so, right right it's like it, yeah, totally. And it, it leads to some really unhealthy uh, um, uh, mental habits that I've, I've had to sort of wean myself off of uh, over the years. Uh, one is that you finish a project and you feel great about it. And that glow lasts until the next morning. And then by, by noon the next day, you're like, what have I done lately? Like you've completely forgotten that you're like, you're still exhausted from the thing you've finished yesterday um sure. and so so yeah so so uh i wouldn't say that that approach is really hand in hand with the concept of self-care uh but i also think that when, when you're when you're young you're a, a little more willing to kind of you know overextend yourself and beat yourself up and and put yourself through some kind of punishing circumstances um and uh part of realizing where i'm at in my life has has been uh, uh, allowing myself to, you know, I, I still don't like saying no, but I, uh, but I, but I can say, I'm really busy this month. Can we do it next month? <laughs> is there? You know, what is your time frame? What are your What are your goals? And then sometimes also now it's really satisfying to be able to say, uh, I'm too busy to take this thing on, but I have a student who's really good at this. Could I? introduce you to them and uh, and hand off some of those opportunities to other people uh, who are uh, at a point in their lives where the gig probably means a lot more for them than it than it would for me. Very cool. Um, I think if we could talk a few minutes about Isabel Audio. Because I'm sure. just curious about how you started your own business, what inspired you to start your own business and um, what you wish you knew when you started your own business, like I'm starting my own business basically right now. Mm -hmm, and just mm -hmm. like, I've had to pick up so many more client skills and business skills and pricing skills that like, I just didn't even realize I would need. And yeah, I'm just yeah. curious what your journey was with that. So the whole way that Isabel Audio came about was uh, Curtis, my, my teacher, and one of his uh, colleagues, a guy named Dan Truman, had been working with uh, uh, this amazing computer musician and coder at Princeton University, we both got their PhDs, uh, this guy named Perry Cook. Uh, 
And one of the many projects was building, uh, involved building spherical speakers, full ball-shaped speakers with drivers all over them um, that uh, were used in a, uh, I won't go into the details of the experiment that they were trying to do, but they, they had a, a thing that they were trying to accomplish and um, it, they, they, they got some results and they published a paper and then it was over. And then those round speakers are sitting in the lab. And so Curtis and Dan started taking the speakers out for uh, gigs and quickly learned that if you're an electronic musician who plays an instrument uh, uh, through a bunch of effects or through, a, through some kind of a computer system, the normal paradigm is everybody plugs into the PA and then you, you play. But you know, if you're a uh, if you're an, an acoustic musician, uh, you're the sound is coming from your instrument, not from these disembodied speakers. And so, if if Curtis plugged into one of these sphere speakers and Dan plugged into one of these sphere speakers, and then they're playing together, all of a sudden, if there's a hum in the system, you know who's making the hum. If Curtis got some research money and asked me to be his research assistant on this project, where we designed, uh, we were going to design a whole, you know army of these speakers to deploy um, maybe for an ensemble uh, where each person in the ensemble had a speaker and everybody was playing off of a laptop uh, or, or, or something. And that idea eventually did happen at Princeton with Dan Truman, something called the, the Princeton Laptop Orchestra, which became the model for a bunch of other laptop uh, orchestras. I think there are 80 or 90 of them globally now, kind of all coming, coming out of this one, this one initial uh, effort. But Curtis and I built this 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 pile of speakers. And the, the first thing we decided is that they'd be a lot easier to hang on to, to transport, to put against a wall, to put on the floor, to do everything if they were not spheres, but hemispheres, if they were half half spheres. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, you actually see there's like a, a, a kind of un like a, sort of a naked one sitting up here. Oh, cool. um, uh, it's like a, a prototype on top of my bookshelf. But um, that's, that's from a speaker I kind of half built a few years ago. Um, but, uh, I didn't know anything about woodworking. I had an uncle who was a woodworker uh, and worked in the furniture industry. So I, I, uh, started to, um, consult with him and, uh, the architecture department had a nice wood shop and I befriended the guy, Sid, who ran the wood shop and would come in there after hours and would cut pieces of wood and was learning how to build speaker cabinets out of MDF. By the end of a year of working, we had built an, uh, a huge collection of like 50 plus of these speakers. And then I started doing kind of large multi-channel sound installation work with the speakers and discovering that this idea of having sound that, that radiated from a point and went out and kind of hit all the walls and the ceiling and the floor of a room uh, was very different from the experience of a typical loudspeaker where speakers, they're just sounding objects like an acoustic instrument. So um, I, I was fascinated with them and I just loved this idea of a speaker that, that in the, a way that's, that's not very subtle at all, uh, uh, addresses the space it lives in. And I was already thinking a lot about acoustic ecology, um, while I was at Rensselaer, the composer Pauline Oliveros um, became a professor there and her work was a huge influence on me. And I started working with her a lot. I helped to recode some of her performance systems and toured with her a little bit. And her philosophy of listening 
combined with the things I was learning from studying field recording and acoustic ecology, combined with Curtis's uh, uh, emphasis on technology and performance, and then these new speakers kind of all came together for me as a, an artistic practice. And so I had these speakers that I was hauling around to do things. Um, and the more people saw them, the more I was like, how do I get one of these? And I was like, well, I can build it. Uh, and so it started just by word of mouth. Um, and uh, I didn't actually form Isabel Audio as a company until 2012. And uh, I'd started building the speakers over 10 years prior to that. So it was really just this unofficial, whenever I would, you know, I kind of eventually had to work out a system for getting all the parts. Uh, my previous work at Polk Audio meant I had a source for drivers that was below market cost, which was really helpful. Um, and their car speakers are very good because they have a tweeter inside a driver that gives you full range speakers out all of the okay, directions. Yeah. So, so it, all of these weird pieces of my past that seemed so disconnected all kind of worked in concert that I, I had just, I was sitting at just the right place to be able to kind of make this, this stuff come together. The reason I formed Isabel Audio in 2012, is I decided that uh, every speaker I, I built up until then used external amplifiers. Uh, so they were all passive speakers. And uh, uh, I started to realize like, oh, there's, um, there's a demand for a situation where the amplifiers can actually be inside the speaker and they can be uh, uh, powered speakers. Um, I worked with uh, uh, a person I found online in China to come up with a, an amplifier design and started to sell speakers that were powered speakers. Um, and as a result, uh, I had uh, the the you know the ability to 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 make this whole new product line. There was a whole new set of people interested, but I was also starting to put things into people's homes and into schools. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, potentially dangerous situations where, you know, I was actually plugging something into the wall, into the speaker. And so uh, with this, this uh, um, idea that here's something that could catch fire if something goes wrong, this is liability. Like as, so as soon as somebody like sues me for like the speaker catching on fire and burning down their house, um, I'm, I'm really in trouble. So uh, I, I learned very quickly about uh, LLC, you know, limited liability corporation. That's what it's all about, making sure the liability stops at the business and doesn't you know, allow them to come after your personal finances. Um, and so, so I had to create an entity and that's how, that's how Isabel got formed um, now 10 years ago. Uh, and since then we've continued to build these speakers and they've undergone evolutions and we're, we're sort of in the middle of a, 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 a new evolution of the speakers now. Um, the design keeps improving. Uh, I keep getting smarter about how to do these things. But once again, it's something that I've learned, uh, not because I you know, have a degree in electrical engineering and went to uh, speaker school or something, but, but, <laughs> but, but, but just, just because I'm, I'm fascinated by this and uh, all of, uh, I, I'm in kind of a weird situation where all of the plans for how to make the speakers are open source, they're online. Uh, if people want to build their own, they're like, your speakers are expensive. I'm like, I know, because they are expensive to, to make and, and, and to have on hand. And, and so they'll say, well, I'm going to build my own. I'm like, well, let me help you build your own because I, I and I keep thinking, you know, if, if, if uh, JBL or, or some speaker company were to decide that they want to make these, 
I, I don't want them to, I, I don't even care about selling it to, to, to them. I just, I just want them to make it better than I make it, cheaper than I make it, so then I can just buy theirs and stop making it. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, That's but that, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, so I feel a responsibility as kind of a proponent of this idea to try and keep the, 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 the speakers as a product alive in the market for people who want to work with sound in this way. And so that's, that's how that continues. Um, I've got a great set of partners who I work with to, to, to make the speakers uh, uh, and to, to deal with a lot of the manufacturing. I no longer sit at, at a table saw and cut the parts anymore myself. I've, I've figured out a way to, to, to hand that off to people who are really good at it and really know what they're doing um, and, and who I can pay to do that part of it and have that all factor into you know the sales price of everything but but all of that kind of stuff and the business end of that and how to manage supply chain especially through the pandemic and I know how to do all these things now but it's only because uh I've I've encountered them and I've had to learn them in order to keep a project going that I wanted to keep going so I had a last question for you and this is the last question we always ask on the podcast which is what advice do you have for people who are young and are also aspiring to do something similar, whether it's like be a sound artist, a composer, a sound designer, what advice do you have for them as they're starting out? Uh, yeah. Um, another person who I really admire, a sound artist who I, whose work I, I love, and uh, I was actually just emailing with her this morning, is the, the composer and sound artist, uh, uh, Anea Lockwood. I had a really influential conversation with her once where she said something to me that I, I just rings in my head all the time. Uh, it is the simplest and kind of funniest thing. She said it with a very sweet smile on her face. She said, um, I've discovered that whenever I say no to something, then nothing happens. So whenever I can, I say yes. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's to the point of being almost like, like super simplistic, but, but how, if you want things to be generative if you want things to continue then then it's it's sort of like you know yes and then you have to figure it out um yes and then and then you know yes might not be we're going to take a direct route from here to there um but but the negotiation of that uh, uh becomes a thing so that that means anytime something comes at you you got to be ready to 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 look at square in the eye and, and, make, and make a call about it A huge thanks to Stefan Moore for being on today's podcast. I learned a lot about focusing on the tasks at hand and developing skills today, even if I'm not exactly sure how they might be useful in the future. Thanks for listening to today's episode. This has been The Pursuit, a Natus Junior Board podcast. <laughs>